Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. What the hell is this Akira thing, huh? I asked Ryu one time. He told me that Akira is ultimate energy. Ultimate energy? everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the show where we are trying to find the best films ever made. And when we do, we are going to send them into outer space. And we are doing something we've never done on the show before. It is May. So Amy and I have decided to celebrate animation and something we like to call animation. Shun. wow we're so smooth so smooth how did it take Uh, us years and years of doing this show and that never occurred to us until i know well i guess we have a little bit more autonomy when we were doing the afi list we couldn't just go into animation and i feel like people have been asking us to explore deeper uh in this area and it's something that we've been enjoying talking about obviously the shrek episode was an episode that really got people worked up why are you picking this and i'm Really happy with that episode because we got to talk about animation as an art form and not a genre. And I think that what we're going to try to do here in this month is look at all different types of animation. And, you know, I just wanted to ask you, like, where is your connection with animation? Like what, like, you know, is it something that you feel like you are a a mega fan of or is it something that you take in small doses? I I don't know where you actually fall on animation. Oh, mega fan. I like that. That sounds like I'm a monster of animation. (laughs) I would say I'm a big fan of animation because you know me, you know me at this point. What makes me love a movie passionately is a movie with tons of creativity. And I feel like animation is just an art form where creativity can really just run rampant. And so animation, yeah, weirdos doing weird stuff, anything being possible on a screen, I'm all about it. I just want to ask you a question out of the gate. Like when you see animation, do you come in with a preconceived notion? Like do you want to see something that kind of blows your mind or are you looking for something that is just a a traditional film that is told in an interesting style? Like what like what are you expecting when you sit down to watch something that's animated? Well, what I want to see is 
creativity. You know, I think that like Shrek partially led us down a path of like amazing animation is ama- is animation that's like photorealistic. Eh, I'm not that into that. Like I like animation that uses the fact that they can do anything, anything with like pens and papers and computers to create like figures and landscapes that are like expressionistic, that are imaginative, that can, I, I don't want to see the real world duplicated perfectly in pixels. I don't, I, I don't even like CGI that much. You know, I want animation to take advantage of the fact that they can do literally anything and bring out just the most creative kind of storytelling. Yeah. I love the idea that animation is a tool for telling a story that you cannot otherwise tell with live action. Not to say that it has to always answer that question because there are great animated shows that could be live action shows like uh, like a king of the hill right that that doesn't need to be Ugh, animated i love king of the hill i love it but Bobby it doesn't hill, need one of the best best characters of all time amazing doesn't need to be animated so i do but i think what i felt about uh, what i feel about animation is the same way i felt about like reading children's books when I grew up, they, they didn't have to like follow the rules of our world, right? They could, it could be a story about an egg leaving its carton, right? It had this idea that, you know, a story could be told with the simplest of objects and a world could be created in an atmosphere that you wouldn't even think is cinematic, but it become, become this world. Like I've read these books with my kids, you know, about a scribble. It simply is about a scribble that wants to be more than a scribble. And it is just a scribbly line. And there's an emotion to that. And there is a character to that. And I love that idea that animation can take something that we would never even recognize as a human character and imbue it with a life in a world. So that, to me, is really exciting. And I'm going to just admit, before we get into this episode, I don't know much about anime. I am not like an anime head. I am not anti-anime, but it's As we go into this, I just want to be on the level and say, I'm watching this as a film fan. I'm not talking about this as an anime expert. I'm sure that a lot of my opinions will be like, well, of course, you dummy. But that's where I'm coming from. That's that's my background on this. Yeah, that's totally fair. And I think to your point that you're even kind of making, like anime isn't even really a genre. It's just Mm -hmm. it's just like saying animation. Basically, again, like animation is not a genre. Animation is a bazillion stories told in a in a form. And anime is the same way, even though I think here in America, we tend to think of it as like, it's like guys with big hair and big eyes karate kicking each other or something like that. Not not necessarily the case. Like anime can mean anything. I love that. And I can't believe I fell into my own trap right out of the gate. All right. So (laughs) uh, without any further ado, I think we should kick off this series with a film that is really viewed as one of the classics that maybe is a an entry point to a lot of people who have never seen uh, anime, right? Like, and this is a stylistic change. It definitely felt that way to me when I was a kid that like Akira, the movie we're going to do is almost like like a here kid. Here's your first VHS tape or DVD burn of Akira for free. And if you like it, come join the world of anime. I got some stuff for you, man. Definitely how this was presented to me in college. So Amy, without any further ado, Sapporo o Kaiji Ojimash. 
The year is 1988. George H.W. Bush defeats Dukakis in the presidential election. The world's first computer virus is introduced, as well as Prozac, laser eye surgery, and crack. Wow, what a year. The world falls in love with Jamaica's national bobsled team at the Winter Olympics. We talked about uh, a film that took the spirit of that called Cool Runnings. Uh, People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive as John F. Kennedy Jr. And the year's big films are Big, Twins, Coming to America, Rain Man, Beetlejuice, all very high-concept films, and Akira. Amy, what's it about, who's in it, and what was on the radio? Akira, directed by Katsuhiro Otomo from his own manga, his own graphic novel, which ran for eight years, 2,000 pages, and was not even complete when Otomo pared it down into this feature with help from co-writer Izo Hashimoto. Akira opens up with just this devastating explosion in the year 1988, and then from there it leaps ahead 30 years to tell the story of a bleak future Neo-Tokyo in 2019 where there are riots in the streets, terrorist bombings in the malls, and a suppressive like tech and military-obsessed government that has been secretly doing experiments on abandoned kids, turning them into shriveled green telekinetic psychics. The most powerful experimented on kid, Akira, has been disappeared. But the main action in this movie happens when two teen orphans in a biker gang, Kaneda, the bossy leader, and Tetsuo, his pushed-around sidekick, run into one of these powerful green wrinkled children, like literally run into them. In the case of Tetsuo, he's on a bike, he bashes into him, he explodes, he survives, and then he discovers that he now has his own mutant powers that could destroy everyone and everything if Kaneda does not stop him. Take a listen. Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Pictures presents a state-of-the-art adventure, Akira. Akira was a huge, huge, huge feat when it came out. It was the most expensive animated film ever made in Japan for reasons we shall discuss. It was released here in the States on Christmas Day, 1989, and it started off okay. It made a million dollars theatrically. People paid attention to it. They're like, oh, this is interesting. But... Akira really took off when it became a bootleg, a kind of like pass around the VHS tape underground word of mouth thing. And that eventually translated into $80 million in home video sales and Akira's ascension as the anime film that finally officially launched Japanese anime in America. You could say that Akira inspired generations of kids and filmmakers like the Wachowskis to soak in its style and its attitude. It motivated people to import more anime Stuff like Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z and Rama One Half and Pokemon and on and on and on. And in the 90s, if you remember this, there's even like a huge upsurge in resurrecting old 60s anime like Astro Boy and Speed Racer. This really kicked off a whole style change, I think, in animation here in America. So what was in the zeitgeist that pivotal Christmas day? Well, Paul, it was a song about kind of what this movie's about, about a broken society about a society that discards its people, including people that have, you know, noticeable wrinkles on their faces. It's about a society that flatters itself as modern, but the singer of this song calls BS on the society's delusions. Yes, it is Phil Collins and Another Day in Paradise. You can tell from the lines on her face You can see that she's 
Oh, I love it. And you know, people don't know this, but another connection with this movie and Phil Collins is that Phil Collins actually has uh, two tentacle arms. So that's why he's so good at playing the drums. So that is, uh, you know, just another small connection there. I will never hear that drum solo in, in the air tonight the same That's way. That's how I can do it so well. You know, Amy, you said oh. this is the one of the most expensive uh, animated films ever made. And I think one of the reasons for that is the movie has 2,212 shots. That is 160,000 single pictures. That's two to three times more than the usual amount of uh, frames and art that is in a film. It also has 327 different colors, uh, another record in animation films, and 50 of those colors were created for the film. Um, and one it's of them, hand-drawn. Yes. Hand-drawn. Yes. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why, you know, it, it this movie is so impressive is, is the movie does take place at night, you know, which is something that most animators, especially when you're doing hand-drawn, we're not talking about the computer-generated stuff, uh, is avoiding because it, it's you need more colors. I mean, there is an Akira Red. There is a specific color made for this movie. It's really amazing if you just look at this film simply as a piece of art. I mean, and that that is really how I think I took it in. You know, this is a very intense movie and and in very similar ways to Conan the Barbarian, it doesn't tell you much. Like you are like, it's like get on board and figure it out for yourselves. And I think that that was something that in a way can be a little bit daunting because for me, this is a movie that I'm seeing it for the first time and I want to try to understand everything, but I I felt like I'm like, wait, hold on. Do I need to rewind? Is that important? What's going on here? And I was trying to grapple with it so much. And I found that myself enjoying the film so much more releasing myself from that, releasing myself from trying to like understand everything and the reason why and, and making it make sense. I think it does all make sense, but it's hard to kind of parse out as it's actually happening. Right. I mean, there's something in this film, maybe because like the Akira manga like launches in 1982 that it feels sort of like watching Blade Runner, where you're watching this like visually stunning world where there's a lot going on and a lot of like subtext under the surface. And you can kind of watch it and just check out a little bit and try to only follow the emotions, you know, of like Mm -hmm. what it's telling you about the mood that it's setting. Or you can lean in and be like, all right, what is happening? Who is that? What's going on? And that involves sometimes like even putting together things that you might know if you've like read the manga, but are not even on the screen, you know, like, back histories into like the cult leaders and the religions and the different government factions. This movie can be as kind of light or as deep as you want it to be. Well, because I, you know, again, I'm no expert, but I believe that the film only really is about half of what is covered in, in the books, in the manga books. Like they are, this is a much larger world with even some more insane things going on in the books that don't even happen in the film. Yeah, like, it's kind of tough. Um, Kazuhiro Otomo really set himself up as, as like, being forced to come up with an ending for the movie before he'd come up with an ending for his graphic series. Kind of like Game it, of Thrones. Yeah, I guess so. Kind of like Game of Thrones. And so he uh, later on was like, that was terrible. That was, at, why would I do that to myself? Like, it was so hard to figure out the ending when I didn't even know the ending um, before I'd even come up with the ending. 
he really, um, in the movie, he cuts out like basically most of, I think it's like book four, which is a lot of the like subtext of what's happening with all of the different factions and like who's going to take over Tokyo. And there's a character named Lady Miyako who you kind of see in this movie. You know, there's like that figure who's like the cult leader on the chair who's being carried around. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like leading people to worship Akira and they think Tetsuo is Akira. Uh, yeah, she's like a huge figure in the book. And in the movie, she's basically not there at all. But they're just, you couldn't do it. You you really couldn't compress this and do it without turning it into like, I don't know, the Titanic, the like never ending Avatar series. I mean, there's something James Cameron like in his ambition to try to put this on screen in the first place. And I think what you get in place of that is while a visually stunning uh, film, a boiled down emotional story, a story about these two characters and the battle between them, like this battle of jealousy and want. And, you know, in in many respects, I was like, why does this feel so familiar? And I I remember that movie Chronicle. Do you remember that movie, like that Max Landis movie, right? um, That it felt like, oh my gosh, this is a direct ripoff of Akira. Like from a... it honestly uh, really is. Yeah, it it kind of blew my mind because... I was like, what, what is feeling so familiar about it? Now, of course, I see all the other cultural touchstones in things like Interstellar or Gravity or The Matrix. But at the core, this idea of like two boys kind of being jealous of each other and, and having this like power was really, uh, really kind of fascinating to me. I really felt like that was once I kind of connected into that, I found myself enjoying the film a lot more because I, I, I was having a hard time kind of connecting with it. I I I don't know what it was. And again, you know, I don't want to be like mm, not my cup of tea, but it was something that I felt like I was expecting something of this movie and I went in I think with probably a different preconceived notion. I thought it was going to be uh something about you know, a man named Akira who fought a bunch of people. Yeah, like yeah. like like a cop story, or like a you know this red bike and this badass looking person. Because I've grown up in a time where I've seen this VHS cover box a million times. I've seen the poster. I've seen the artwork, and I assumed it was much more like a badass guy taking care of business in a town. You know, doing something. You know, they not that. Hey, it's me. I'm Akira, and I'm here to say. Well, yeah, <laughs> rapping granny. What are you doing here? Uh, and like that opening sequence of the motorcycles felt like, oh, this is the movie that I was expecting. And then it just, I mean, it veers off course, and not off course because obviously they know where they're going, but it subverts their expectations so much that my gosh, by the time you get to the end of this movie and where it is gone, it is truly for me, mind-blowing. I mean, visually, it is a stunning turn. Yeah, I mean, the emotional thrust of this movie, I think you're exactly right. I love it. I love it. Uh, You have these two long-term friends. They've known each other since they're kids. They're kids who are growing up in a society that's pretty much abandoned people. You know, like, they're living in this kind of apocalyptic-ish wasteland. It's not so apocalyptic that malls don't exist and that people aren't kind of going to work and trying to live their life. But it's rough and the kids are just running around on bikes and they're like doing drugs and hanging out at bars. 
When they go to school, like the teachers are just screaming and like slapping them, knocking them around. This school is your last chance. If trash like yourselves can't keep up with the academic ability of regular students, this is it. If you can't live a decent social life, you end up here. And if you screw up here, it's the end of the road. Also, even though you're under 15, if you get more than 50 penalty points on your record, you're sent to the regular course. Yeah, bite me. Don't mess with us, you bald Aren't old any goat. Of you, listening? you lost me halfway through, sir. Discipline! And basically you have this image of like a new Tokyo where all the adults in charge are just like manipulating kids for their own advantage, like using them to figure out how they can turn them into super weapons or just selling them drugs and booze or shooting them or conscripting them or enlisting them in cults. You know, it's not a, it's not a world with a lot of promise for kids. Yeah. Even you even see it in the motto on their jackets, which uh, if you look at their jackets, if you translate it, it's like uh, good for health, bad for education. This idea that they are <laughs> rebelling, you know, they are rebelling against this this new Tokyo and this idea of, you know, it's all it's fine. Like, don't look under the surface. Like, I think that this is something that we see so much in all of the movies that kind of come after this. And you know, this idea of like what lies beneath is a lot darker and don't go there. Yeah, I love all of the all of the graffiti tags in here. You know that there's like people writing on the wall like fuck you. Just real simple. Fuck you and die punks. And like oh it's one this one has to be translated but it says like struggle impose imperialism. I I, I there's so much just text in here that like I feel like if you could read Japanese which I can no longer read Japanese like you could just like pick up on such resonance that's happening. But there is also like a history in Tokyo, or, but there is also a history in Japan of just like biker gangs, of like Bozokuzu biker gangs that kind of showed up in the 40s, 50s. It basically like a bunch of World War II veterans when they got out of the war had like kind of this like thrill-seeking, angry, lost energy. Um, and they all took up bike racing. They got like really inspired by American, um, greaser culture. And so they started forming these like biker gangs in Japan, which become like kind of a big violent deal. You know how like here we have like critical mask where everybody in the, like all the hippies like drive down the street in their bikes and like block traffic all day. Right. Yeah. They had that in Japan with like the biker gangs, but they would like do it to take over highways and stuff and like blow through the toll booths and, and like. Anyway, it was like a huge culture that like Akira is kind of nodding its head to, but now it's been a little bit suppressed. Like the police are calling bikers pseudo Yakuza as a way of being like, we're going to say they're Yakuza. And that way we have a way of kind of targeting them and taking them down. But yeah, like it, when you see like Kaneda on the bike, it's kind of like seeing a punkish James Dean, you know, who's like, my parents abandoned me. I've grown up on my own. The system sucks, man. And like, he's kind of a jerk to like people around him and his best friend who like grows up feeling really resentful Tetsuo in the shadows that when like Tetsuo has this power the movie really becomes about like two guys who have been really only had each other now like in this battle over like who's going to destroy their city there do you see Kaneda I won't be needing you to come to the rescue ever again okay from now on I'll be in charge of the heroics. So if you need any saving, just ask Connie. Damn it, Tetsuo! Who the hell do you think you're talking to, you moron? Ha! You don't like what you're hearing, do ya? 
makes you angry. So what are you gonna do now? Well, Kaneda, what are you gonna do now? So yeah, it is emotional that like when Tetsuo gets all of these powers and he's so angry and kind of like hunched and grim and he's like had all this pain and he's like crippled by these headaches and he's like horrified by the way that he's being treated by the doctors and yet he like enjoys this carnage. Like he's a really kind of complicated acting out violent teenager. Like that when they have to have this showdown over the fate of their city that Kaneda has that line like, well, if anybody's going to kill him, it has to be me. I mean, how just dark and sad is that? Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway. And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. But I want to ask you, like you said that as you were watching this, you were thinking of Chronicle. Was that before or after like angry, broken, fierce Tetsuo grabs a piece of red fabric and ties it around himself like a like a makeshift Superman cape? Yeah, well, that that section of the film, like those last 45 minutes, I think are the moments where you start to see a lot of that emotional dynamic, right? It's, it's much more on display there. It's like, this is the moment where it is, you know, you have your matrix moments there. You know, this, I think it's all building to that last 40 minutes, you know, in many, in many respects, you know, we're building the world out uh, early on. And you're right, that becomes the superhero moment. Interesting that uh, Tesoro, his name, you know, translates to Iron Man, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously is foreshadows, uh, you know, what he starts to become, but also yeah. uh, just from the, the symmetry of like what our superhero movies are. He be- That's the moment he becomes this superhero. And I think for me watching... And it's funny because Iron Man also makes me think of how much this movie has in common with RoboCop. Yes. In that it's about like, here is somebody where like the techno military crats have broken a person down and turned them into, you know, like a screaming painful monster. Absolutely. No, I, I I think that there is a very similar idea here that, and not to keep on bringing it back to Conan, but this idea of being forced to fight, being forced to be something that you are not. You know, it's like you're being taken out of your routine of being a child and you're being manipulated by society to be this more violent creature and you have no control over it. And, you know, we talked about that in Platoon, you know, the way that Oliver Stone showed these children essentially becoming, you know, for lack of a better term, like men, because they had to kind of step up. And I think this movie has a similar idea about what war, what destruction, or honestly, you know, I was wondering about like what's going on in Japan at this time to talk about like what is what is the parallel here? Because obviously in America, we at this time 
Vietnam is a very big through line. But in Japan, like, what do you think they are mirroring in their society? And I, I don't know that much about Japan. I didn't know if you knew anything more that they could kind of be pulling from. Well, I know a little bit of what, like, Otomo has said he was tapping into. That, like, he was born 10 years after the end of World War II, but that this film, in a way, tapped into how he pictured that time where he was born. You know, like, in a Japan that had been destroyed by warfare and bombs, where people were sort of rebuilding, but rebuilding kind of, like, with their breath held, like, a little uncertain of what the future was going to be here, like, who was going to wind up taking charge of the country, like, what way the country was going to grow up in. And so, I mean, when he's, like, coming up with the story, like, sci-fi manga wasn't so huge. Like, manga, you know, just graphic novel kind of in general in Japan, they, they're they all sorts of stories. Right. It's like here, you know, like, you might say comic book movie and that in your head kind of sounds like you mean Marvel movie or superhero, but comic books are all sorts of things. You know, there's all kinds of different kind of graphic novels. And in Japan, um, in the 70s, when he was coming up as an artist... The most popular kinds of manga were like sports stories, like soccer games and baseball or like adult stories, you know, dramas and romances. And yes, of course, porn, but like sci-fi wasn't so huge. Right. And so I think a lot of his own sci-fi anxieties, you know, get put into the story of Akira. But there's also, I feel like, but there's also, I feel like kind of a conversation back and forth between like Akira and Japanese animation and kind of animation happening in America. You know, like not only this nod to like Superman that you see in here, but with the red cape, but like when the kids are all in this kind of hospital together, they go into this like kids playroom, like the baby room. And it basically is Disneyland. It's almost like Shrek all over again. They go to a room where there's like a big mouse on the wall and like a castle that's like Sleeping Beauty's castle. And then they destroy it. You know, because that's always been kind of this like history back and forth between like Japanese animation and American animation, which is like basically from the beginning of animated features in Japan, they were competitive with Disney. Like there were some creators in Japan who felt like Western audiences would never care about live action films with Asian actors. So kind of trying to be like, well, if they won't watch us act, we'll try to make animation that they'll pay attention to. So they make their first big animated feature in, I think, like 1944, 1945, seven years after we do it here with Snow White. Um, although this one is like very much for Japanese people. It was like an animated film called Momotaro Sacred Soldiers. And it was basically like a propaganda film. Uh, it's about a bunch of animals who join the Air Force or the Navy and they do like parachute jumps uh, like here, here's even like kind of a clip from it. This is like when the animal air force captures an island of British soldiers and makes them surrender. We agreed to unconditional surrender. Yes, certainly. Unconditional surrender. That movie, by the way, is like all available online. And if you watch it, it ends with like cute little animals jumping into a chalk outline of America as a way of saying like, we're attacking America next. But um, yeah, it's sort of like they're just competitive with Disney thinking like, how can we get that Disney attention? So I love it when they show up in that castle room. And just 
pull the Shrek thing of like destroying and making fun of Disneyland. Like it's, it's funny how the success of Disney has kind of been this like carrot on the end of the stick that like animation has been chasing after it, trying to beat it, you know? I think it's actually really easy to beat Disney at their own game. Maybe not in the enormous financial success that they achieve or the wide reach that they have, but in the content that they create. Because Disney is known for creating something. It's like they make the best chocolate chip cookie, but they may not have the best oatmeal cookie. And if you just go like, I'm going to make an oatmeal cookie, like I will go and eat my oatmeal cookie over there and I'll keep on going back to my Disney to have my chocolate chip cookie. And I think, you know, when you have that laid down, it's a much more interesting thing than trying to see somebody go like, well, I can sell my chocolate chip cookie for a dollar cheaper and, and maybe people will come here. And that, that's what it always feels like when people are competing with Disney on that level. It, it always feels to me like, why bother? Like, you know, they, there's, they're not adding anything to the mix. And this feels so aggressively different, but it can also bring in an audience. Like I watched my son like love Pokemon. He's watching old Pokemon, Pokemon that I was watching when I was a kid. Now, not really. I wasn't watching Pokemon, but that were that was on when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the push-pull. Like, a part of why this movie was so long and so expensive is because Otomo knew that in Disney they recorded the voices first and then they animated that, which was not a thing that had been done in Japanese animation. They always did the animation and then added the voices second because it's a little bit quicker and easier and it's a little more slapdash. But he made a point here of recording all of the characters first and then, like, adapting the animation and the style of the characters to fit the voice performances because Disney did it first. And he was like, well, if they're going to do it, that's clearly the better way to do it, which is, yeah, that's like a huge undertaking. But I like, I appreciate that he did it. I'm, I don't know how you watch the film. Like I'm going to be playing clips here from the dubbed version because you can understand it better in a podcast, but you can watch the subtitled version too online. So I like watched it subtitled and pull and pulling dubbed audio clips. Um, I actually, I actually watched it dubbed. Um, and maybe that is sacrilegious, but there was something about it where I wanted to really enjoy the visual aspect of the film. And I found that if I was reading too much, I wasn't taking in the beauty of what I was seeing. Um, because it truly is something that's so immersive, you can kind of get lost in it. It was almost like that uh, documentary about The Shining, like Room 237, right? Is that what it was called? Mm -hmm. You know, where you're just looking at you to be able to stare at these characters. I felt way more invested into the story. Yeah. I mean, to be able just to like soak in stuff like that early bike chase when they're fighting the clown gang, like to have that music kind of click in as they're on the bikes, that sort of ancient percussive, strange, quirky, corally music. I don't even know how to describe the music here, but I just love kind of sinking into it. I love this clown gang. I mean, this clown gang, and again, you know, from the where the movie kind of starts in this world, it really, I think it also shifts tone. Musically, it shifts tone too, because those final, you know, those final moments of the film, you know, there are, there's like a, a more solid, like a, 
like a drum like going on like you know there's a there's yeah. a, you know and and they play with sound throughout the film i love that when they go into space that it's silent right yeah, like it, you know silence. and that's something that you know we we talk about and joke about a lot like there's no sound in space and they do that something that gravity obviously takes from too the way that they play with sound throughout and f- whether it is a score or just no sound you know it really it's it's really really interesting that even the computer sounds when they're you know scanning tetsuo did you know that that was uh, the computer from Aliens. They just hijacked <laughs> that sound, um, which is really, you know, there's a lot of like interesting little fun homages uh, throughout yeah. the film. You can tell that this is a movie that loves 2001 A Space Odyssey and Alien. Mm. And I love that you're talking about the vo- the use of silence. Like my favorite part was when Tetsuo finally goes to the Olympic Stadium to try to track down Akira, mm-hmm. which, by the way, like just one of the weird randomness things of this movie is like it's uh, kind of positioned at a time where they're like leading up to the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Right. Which we actually had. Did, I don't yeah. know like if they arranged that because of Akira, but we are supposed to have our 2020 Olympics. Our original opening ceremony for the 2020 Olympics was supposed to start with Akira's red bike, like bursting into the Olympic Stadium. Whoa. But the first organizing head who came up with that she stepped down because of the pandemic. And then the next person after her changed it. And then they stepped down. And then the organizing committee that came in after that just redid the whole thing from scratch. But Akira was supposed to be the first shot of it because it's so like wild that they were pic- picturing this like fictional Olympics that people were protesting even in the movie. You know, like there's that scene where um, they show a little signboard saying like 147 days to the opening ceremony. And then there's like tagging underneath it. And then the, the graffiti underneath says, just cancel it. So... Here, when we were 147 days out from this Olympics and people were like, this is kind of a bad idea. There's plagues. What's happening? We should not be doing this. There was a Twitter protest in Japan where that day, 147 days before the actual 2020 Olympics that happened, people just started tweeting, just cancel it in Japanese as like a callback to Akira. Oh, wow. Anyway, very random, strange detour. But I love that moment as he's like going to the stadium looking for Akira there's all of this noise and craziness. He like summons this Akira from the depth, you know, the kind of bubble of like tubes. Right. And instead of just getting louder and louder and louder, like they make the choice to go quiet. Open now! What the hell is this? Are also going quiet. It gives you a chance just for beautiful little character beats. Like, you know that there's um, one of the little kids who's green, um, Kyoko, the one who kind of looks like Betty Davis, like a green Betty Davis. She is weaker and she spends a lot of it like in bed or inside this bubble. I love that moment where she's trying to communicate back and forth with Tetsuo. And you hear her little tiny green shriveled kid hands touching the plastic bubble that she's in. <sighs> Tetsuo Shima, calm yourself. But he can't control it, sir. What'd you say? She said that big people like you should never use the power in the way that you are. And bad things will come of it. (laughs) Mind your own business, will ya? Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, those are kind of the grace notes that make you feel like an animator really has a hand on this as art. Like one of my really um, good critical friends is a guy named Charles Solomon, who's like been like a major just animation reviewer forever. And his main complaint about modern animation is that 
it talks too much and it moves too much. And it's just people running around and screaming all the time, just filling up all corners of the screen that there's no sense of pacing in poetry. And I think Akira is all about the pacing in the poetry. Like, I love those moments. And, you know, Otomo was saying when he wanted to come up with just the sound of it, he didn't want to use synthesizers because he felt like synthesizers and sci-fi were totally played out. He wanted this to have its own sound. So he reaches out to this musical group. Their name is like Geno Yamashirogumi. And they specialize in doing kind of folky takes on like ancient music. This is one of their albums that they did like 10 years before they even did the score of, of Akira. such a neat sound to kind of layer into this movie the idea of like something that doesn't try to sound modern but sounds almost more ancient absolutely i think that that is also a sign of good sci-fi right because it doesn't feel of the time it feels right completely unique that's the vangelis score for blade runner doesn't sound of the moment it is completely a sound that is synonymous with blade runner um you know it's interesting because it feels so unique that you can't copy it in a weird way. Like if you put Vangelis in anything else, you would be thinking about Blade Runner. It would, it elicits a certain sound. So I think that like, it's almost a way to copyright something a little bit. That's why I think movie trailers steal great scores because they're hoping to elicit the connection that you have with another movie with an upcoming movie. Or they can just use Billie Eilish bad guys over and over and over and over Mm. again. I feel like that's got to be the number one trailer song right now. That's like the only song I feel like I ever hear. Well, you know, again, it's it's about that emotional connection. I've I've read like articles on it. Like it's about connecting you. Like if you like the song, I now feel positively about this movie. And there's these ruts, like you said, like what we get in where we're like, we're just going to hear that song over and over again because we want to hear it as like a culture. Um, And I think that that, you know, moving away from that actually makes things last longer, obviously. But that's more for trailers and stuff. Um, this movie has a ton of homages. I mean, the, that idea you're talking about the uh, the bike, right? The bike is such an iconic movie vehicle, even though it's an animated vehicle. It is, I would argue, probably one of the few iconic animated vehicles, right? I mean, I can't think of another animated vehicle that has as much, like, brand recognition yeah i'm trying to think i mean to me like the obvious comparison is like the bikes in tron right but, but that's like live action that, yeah, like it's yeah. a little but you're right but like yeah it's not like a well josh brings up the mach 5 another uh another anime vehicle like the, from speed racer there is something to be said about that design that like the design is very tactile and you want you like you want that like i feel like you leave wanting that bike the way that you kind of feel i think when you you know you see like steve mcqueen's car in bullet or or you know or the new <laughs> batmobile like oh i love that like there, there's something about it but that that bike you know that idea of like the sliding into camera like that that opening chase sequence which is so great that is i think it's got to be one of the most referenced shots 
in movies and in animation. I mean, I feel like I've seen that a million times. It's always fun to see a movie later and be like, oh, that's what that is. Like, like that yeah, was the first time. Yeah, right that's the camera? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. And just the way, like, the lights are following the bikes. I mean, this film, I think, has one of the most beautiful uses of light I've seen in an animated movie. I mean, just the beauty of this animation, because they're not at all going for like a photorealistic thing. You know, the colors here tend to be a little blocky. Like when he wears the red cape, it's mostly just red. You know, the white smoke is mostly just white. But within it, they use kind of really great just shadowing details. And then the light, you know, kind of the way like spotlights shine onto people's faces and they pull up slowly and you see the light move around. Other way, the kind of neon reflects on people, reflects on bubbles, reflects on faces, like the color here is so great. And kind of like what you're talking about with sound, like Otomo knows when to pull back the color and just give you something white to give you kind of like the purity to show you like the contrast between everything beautiful visual that he's like showing to you. I mean, I guess there's something kind of resonant in the idea that here in this animated world, like the death bomb that it opens up with is just whiteness, is just like all of this animation and color and style being erased almost like a giant eraser has kind of hit the page and like those old cartoons where like an eraser would erase yeah. like Bugs Bunny's feet and he'd be complaining at you um it's it, it's like just so evocative in that way or even the ending when like Tetsuo is kind of going into his own head or sort of disappearing into like the alternate consciousness or whatever you think about it it's a moment in the film that's like to me very much like the end of 2001 where you start like zipping forward in time and you have all those crazy rainbows coming at you except like Otomo instead illustrates that not with like a bunch of rainbow colors, but he starts just with like white, you know, white and kind of like pencil lines. Mm -hmm. This like contrast of simplicity that I find in here is just so gorgeous. I mean, yeah. that they had to do these lights. I'm, I know I'm like granting, but that they had to animate these lights on people's faces by hand. Like, you know, a lot about modern animation. They can just sort of set it up and be like, there's a light source here and the computer will adjust for you. And the light will go around the room as needed. They're like painting every individual window and every single like landscape by hand. And then they're having them move around. It's like, it's it's honestly staggering to watch this film just for the way that the light moves around on people's faces. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And I guess my question to you, Amy, in watching it, because it's the first time I've seen it, when did you see it for the first time? Uh, college. I had a boyfriend who put me down on a couch and said, you have to watch this movie. All right. It so, was a time when everybody was wearing like baggy pants and everything felt like, uh, like it was all inspired by anime anyways. I, I love it. I mean, now coming to this movie so late in the game, 
you know, I, I see how, you know, people like Kanye will say this is the best animated film of all time. What did they compare it to? Uh, Spirited Away. He was Spirited like, Away. he tweeted like, no way Spirited Away is better than Akira. And then all caps, no way. This is not only the greatest animation achievement in history, the subject matter is so relevant to the current state of the world. Every stage show I've worked on, every video, every product, even when I was in the hospital, I would think, oh shit, this is like Akira. And then, and then Kanye said, this movie is my biggest creative inspiration. And then he tweeted a picture of Otomo holding a pair of Yeezys that I guess he gave him. But uh, it's true. Like, I, have you seen his video for Stronger? Like, yes. The first, yeah. yeah. Stronger, by the way, is this song, this one right here. If you haven't noticed it before, like Kanye puts himself as Tetsuo in the video. He's like, he goes inside the spinning medical machine. He comes out, he like scares a nurse and he scares a bunch of cops. He rides the red bike and leaves these lines through Tokyo. I mean, he's not hiding his fandom in the slightest. Well, now I'm going to say something that probably will piss off so many people in our audience, but I'm okay with it because it's opening up for discussion. Is Akira like the Scarface of anime? Oh my God. Like where it is culturally, like, I love the look. I love this line. I love how this is. I want to, I'm wearing a shirt that has it, but does it actually have, like, it is visually beautiful. It is, uh, you know, it is a, it is a, is a stunning film, but is it more than that? Is there is there enough here? Like, and again, I don't. I think there are plenty of movies that can exist this way. They make a cultural impact. They are so strong that you are. The visuals are what I think lead this film. You know, um, I don't know. Like, I I, I was wrestling with this. When you say Scarface, do you just mean this is the one that people put on their dorm room wall? Yes. Okay. Like, yeah, and I think there is that that energy of like you see people wearing Scarface shirts, and sometimes I'm like. Do you even know what that movie is about? Do you even Le- Scarface, bro? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, I think there's like an element <laughs> of like, I like everything about this, but I don't even know if I'm fully representing what it is as much as I just want to live in this world. I want to be like underneath this banner. I There's something about it that I was just wrestling with because while I did feel a connection to the story, especially, uh, you know, in the last 40 minutes, I did find myself appreciating it more like a work of art than feeling the way that I might feel in a movie that that moves me. And I know I understand that like cyberpunk and that cyberpunk is also like not my like go-to thing. Uh so I'm fine with that. Uh and also You're not understanding. a cyberpunk guy? Well yeah I'm I'm fine to understand that like that may not be that like so this may have two things against it, you know. But and I understand that cyberpunk also like keeps you at a distance to a certain extent too. Um, you know, that they emotionally, it's not like, it's not like a, it's not like Blade Runner. I mean, yeah. I do think that Blade Runner actually has a pretty, uh, emotional through line, especially at the end with, you I, know, I, I think mean, I, I, I do think that like, you know, very deliberately, it's hard to love like Kaneda or Tetsuo, right? Mm-hmm. Like, is that part of what you're saying? Like you couldn't yeah, I think get it's like, so uh, invested. Like, I think to me, I think it's really beautiful how emotional they are when they're like fighting even yes. that they're just screaming at each other and they like want, they're just like 
Ah, uh, just just listen. You always show up and start bossing me around, and don't you deny it? And now you're a boss too, of this pile of rubble. Canada! That's Mr. Canada to you, punk! And yet, even after you hear that kind of like raw emotion coming out of these two kids who, by the way, they're like in the lore of Akira, they, these are like Gen Z kids. They're like born in 2003, 2004. They're like 15, 16 in the events of this film. They're very young. That there's, you know, quite soon after that fight, there's a moment where like Tetsuo is turning into like the gigantic tumor beast of a right. Brazilian colors. And the very first thing he does is he like, cries out for help. He asks for his friend who has been trying to kill him for the last 45 minutes. He asks for help just immediately. Help! Kanida, help, please! I find that so beautiful because it's like a moment of reconciliation that's not clumsy or explained. Nobody's like, your mom's Martha, my name's Martha. Right. There's none of that. It's just like, a recognition that when you're when you're completely out of your own control and you're so scared and you're a child, you kind of just forget everything and you want your friend to help you. And that he yeah. accidentally kills his like sort of girlfriend is so sad. Well, to me, I wonder if at a certain level, this movie is better served seeing it for the first time as someone in high school or as someone in college. Like this is an entry point to a different type of storytelling, you know, cause now I'm older and I think it hit me differently than if I would have seen it at a point in my life that would have resonated with me a little bit more. You're not to say that the, the themes are not resonant, I, but it, there is an element to me where I'm like, Oh, there is a, you know, to a certain extent, like a clockwork orangeness to it. This idea of like, uh, again, you know, like what, what are we adding to society? How are we uproaring? Like, what are we going again? Like, there's a lot of, I think there's something that really connects you to that world. I don't know. Like, you know, if you, if, especially if you get yeah. at it younger. I mean, I, I hear you. Like, I love all those questions. I think between the two of us, I'm definitely more fatalistic. Mm -hmm. And I think that I find some beauty in fatalism. I think, I don't know, maybe this is my problem with a lot of films. <gasps> oh no. That like, an overabundance of hope seems corny to me. So right. I actually find it more emotional when films are like, things can be kind of hopeless. In fact, they probably are. And I'm like, that's beautiful. I like that we can all acknowledge this. You know, and so in this film, like the kind of like double-edged sword of brutality in it, that like, here come say like the cult leaders and they're like calling out for a care to rescue them. And they're like chasing after Tetsuo and they're all on the bridge. And Tetsuo accidentally sort of gets everybody killed, you know, like mm -hmm. in that it just happens. Like it just happens. Like he's on the bridge and all of these people who are oh, calling, yeah. calling for him, like who want this moment, he doesn't save anybody. There's something in the brutality of that that I really admire. Absolutely. Or the way that like the blood and guts here, that kind of, it's weird. It's not tasteful blood and guts where it's like, there's none of it, but it's also not in your face. Like sometimes you see like, you arrive to a scene after there's been a fight and a soldier is vomiting blood quietly in the corner. There's something so chilling about that that I really respect. Uh, yeah, I am totally on. Like, 
I'm not looking for a rosy outcome. I'm not saying that like I feel like, oh, I want this movie to have hope to it. I think that the fatalistic tendencies of the movie and really where the movie for me starts to work is in the last 40 minutes. But that's after like an hour and 20 of just like, I think world building. And I think it's keeping me a little bit at a distance. So at at that moment where where the dominoes begin to fall, and we talked about this with adaptation too, like until we start to find an ending, like it it is feeling almost like a comic book in the sense of we're going to do cool things. We're going to explore this. And I think in a comic book, when you're adapting a comic book, there's a pacing that you use. I, I mean, in writing comic books myself, I understand that the, the pacing of it, you have panels to fill and sometimes you have issues to complete. So while, you know, the director feels like, oh, I wish I didn't race to the end. I, I wanted to do more. That actually felt the most movie-like to me. That actually felt like, oh, you've actually committed to this. It's not just an adaptation of something else. And I think without that ending that he is not happy with, I don't know how engaging this movie is beyond a visual level. So I, I guess like, so I guess my question to you is like, you know, there is a little bit of this bastardization of the writer and director's idea of what they wanted to do versus, you know, in, in working in a different format in adapting, like we talked about in an adaptation, like the forced third act. And we talked about this, you know, specifically about the third act of adaptation too. Like it becomes something that the rest of the film is not because in the beginning, we're just kind of living in this world. We're understanding things. Yes. We're seeing these connections, but it doesn't have that. I don't think it has that drive. Uh, I think it's more like these little mini adventures, these little scenettes in a way. I mean, I disagree, but I do like the idea that it is a movie where I would say there's not really like a lead protagonist so much, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like, yes, Kaneda's kind of the guy with the cool bike, but it's this movie kind of jumps all over the place. You're staring at all all sorts of people. And I think like Tetsuo, as much as he kind of becomes also the villain of the end of the film, to me, he's like a villain, almost more like like... Like King Kong or Godzilla is a villain. It's like, you made Mm. me, you brought me here. I didn't want to be here. I will destroy because you've like, you've hurt me in some way. And I guess, I don't know. I think it is emotional to me because that's sort of closer to how I see the world. That like villains aren't just like born with evil mustaches totaling around. You know, even in this movie, the people that I expect to be more villainous, like the colonel, wind up having some soft sides that like, even though like little green girl saves the colonel at the end by moving him away when things are going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there is a big difference between this and the manga, besides the tightening of it, one of them is that they, um, I think this movie has more empathy for Tetsuo than he does in the graphic novel. And I think this movie isn't quite as hard on Kaneda as he also is in the graphic novel, where he's a little bit more of like a creep kind of almost borderline date rapist kind of character. I think this movie makes these characters sweeter without making them too sweet. So I like that about it. I mean, he really did have like a huge hand in trying to think of how to adapt this for America in the first place, you know, because when Marvel, like a guy who's um, in charge of Marvel at the time named Archie Goodwin comes and reaches out to him and says like, I feel like we need to bring this to America. You know, he giving him kind of this sales pitch of why I think it's good and necessary. My first impression was the artwork was so wonderful. Mr. Otomo's story uh, seemed to fit what I thought were the tastes of the American audience. Uh, He was dealing with a science fiction theme, which American audiences like, but he was also dealing with uh, beings with 
paranormal powers, which is a very popular theme in American comics and in American science fiction now. I respect that, like, Otomo, he spends so much time getting an American version ready for us. Like, he, you know, not only does he, like, reverse the order of the panels, because, of course, in, in Japan, you start reading in the back and read and page forward. He colors everything because he figured American readers want, would prefer it in color. It's black and white in the original Japanese. He, like, changes the text bubbles in a lot of the images to try to make them fit. I mean, you coming from a background of doing comic book novels, it's so much work to do that. And, and even so, then he takes flack from all sorts of people for weird things. Like one of the flacks he got for for the movie and for the and for the graphic novel is that people didn't think the girls in it were hot enough. So you think these girls I draw aren't cute? I'm often asked why I always draw such strange-looking girls. Well, it's hard to say because there is no real reason. It's just that most comics emphasize super cute girls. Actually, it's easy to draw good-looking girls. Anyone can do that. Okay, I'll draw some cute ones too, if that's the only way I can make a living. I actually like that. I kind of, I'm not into like an endless tedium of like big breasted girls with long legs. I like the girls in this. I like how they're kind of messy and strange and goofy and weird and mean at some points. I understand how this movie comes here and everyone loses their shit about it because it is doing something decidedly different. The violence, the gore, the idea of this, you know, this is not a genre that we're even really dealing with that much, you know, in 1988, like, you know, cyberpunk isn't like alive and we're not like, you know, it's not like, so I understand like that the uh, reaction to it is almost like everyone's like, oh, hey, wait, what's going on? And it's sort of like, it makes the biggest impact. So I feel like it, it grabs people, yeah. but I wonder if it is, I don't know. I, I, I found it too. You seem suspicious by stuff like I found MTV it to be a little boring. Night- well, okay. Yeah, okay, I was going to say, you seem suspicious about like how like MTV in 1990, you know, because this comes out Christmas 89 here, yeah. is like, we're going to use this to springboard talking about manga, the cool new thing. And they even interview Otomo. Manga artist Katsuhiro Otomo has broken big in Japan with his science fiction comic Akira, which posits a post-apocalyptic world filled with children gifted with telekinetic powers, which threaten to lead to an even more terrifying apocalypse. Akira is not strictly science fiction, though. It's also about rebellion against government and society. I don't only intend to express my thoughts or theories through what I write, but I do intend to think together through this medium what we can do to improve the situation. I think there's something... Subconscious happening here, Paul. I feel like some guy who liked Akira made fun of you, or maybe you didn't get into it and you feel kind of resentful. I feel like there's something under the surface that if I if I peel back a layer, what's happening? No, you? you know, honestly, like I I've I think to me, and as we're talking about it, what I'm realizing is everything that I love has been influenced by this. So I think it actually dilutes this film in a way like a lot of a lot of things that Uh, I you know and I and I think it's sort of like one of those things where I'm like sure but I actually like the other version more and I've and we've talked about this on the show who what deserves you know what deserves to be put forward the one that actually influenced or the ones that were influenced you know and and I think that there is something here where 
The music is amazing. The art is amazing. And the story is good. I just don't think of it as being like, oh my God, I wouldn't run out and be like, you gotta go see Akira. Now, like, I, like that's, that was my exit of this. It was like, it was good. I had a great time. It was a good movie. But it wasn't like, to me, like, like I think I was going into it expecting my mind to be blown. And, uh, you know, and I, I think I just felt it was emotionally, you know, again, it, it worked good for me to a certain extent, but it just, uh, it wasn't, I'm not saying it's bad. I just feel like it's a little overrated. Wow. Those are fighting words. I know. And I, and I know that they'll probably rile people up and it's like, but I'm not saying it's bad. And I think I really want to like classify that. Like, I'm not saying it's bad. Um, I mean, I do wonder if it's cursed. Like they've been trying to remake it for what, 20 years now? Isn't and like I Jordan Peele said ever, that he was going to make it at one point, Taika right? Taika Waititi right now, but it's like, yeah. who knows? I mean, everybody's been attached to try to make like a, an Akira and God knows if it'll ever happen. Like it, it does feel, I don't know if I'd want to even see it get remade in the first place because I don't know if we would remake it with kind of this like color block, beautiful, detailed simplicity. I don't know how this film is both detailed and simple at the same time in its animation style, but it is. And I... I don't, I feel like if we couldn't do it this beautifully, I don't need to see like a better CG animated bike. I don't care. I don't care. Right. Yeah. That doesn't matter to me. I mean, this movie, Akira, I think just, I'm, I want it to exist as is, as the first animated movie ever released by Criterion holds that record for 20 years until Fantastic Mr. Fox. I don't think it should be remade. I think it should just exists in its little bubble with its little hands tapping on the bubble and you can hear how beautiful the hands are when they touch the the plastic. By the way, I I'm not I'm not against that. I think that remaking this movie is losing maybe the centerpiece of what makes this movie so interesting. It is about I think capturing a moment like in a time. I think we've we've seen what happens when you remake Blade Runner. Although I I didn't mind the remake of not the remake Ugh. but the continuation of it. I know you didn't like it. The fantastical but, um, world where suddenly for some reason Deckard wears t-shirts. <laughs> That's your issue with it? That's one of them. Um <laughs> wait, why? Why are you upset about him wearing t-shirts? That's not even what that character dresses like in the first Blade Runner. It just makes it obvious Years that, like, have passed. It just makes it clear that Harrison Ford would only do it if he could show up in his own clothes. <laughs> Deckard wore cool ties. If he's not going to wear cool ties and cool suits, there's not even anything fat, like futuristic in his outfit. It's so lame. You know, I guess the way that I feel about it is I'm glad that I saw it. I'm glad that it exists. I'm glad that this film influenced so many people and brought this style of animation here. And I think it is an influential film and probably has a similar effect to the way that people look at Citizen Kane. Like you need Citizen Kane, but you may not pull out Citizen Kane as the one that you're going to, that you're going to watch. Maybe. I get it. You don't like this movie because the people are so sweaty. Is that it? You like, uh, yes. you like your animation to be sweating me. less? Is you that it? got me. You uh-huh. know what? That is it. Um, but at the same time, I'm also down to rewatch it. Like, that's how I left it as well. You know, um, I think 
watching this in 1988, I probably would be a lot more shocked at the blood and the gore and the characterizations. And I think even maybe some of the emotional storytelling, it was so elevated. And to be maybe an American seeing this for the first time, if you didn't, you know, weren't watching like Robotech or, you know, these other shows that, you know, where there were more challenging stories, I could see how this is like, you know, we talk about this a lot on how did this get made? Is it good because... I remember it being good because that was a movie I saw. Like we we were ch- chatting about like Lady Hawk. Is Lady Hawk a good movie, or do I just like Lady Hawk because I love Ferris Bueller, I love Matthew Broderick, and it was cool and it was different, and I liked it at that time. And there are movies I never want to go back and rewatch because they are burnt in my head as being good. I don't want to analyze them anymore. Um, and you know, I think there is something about. Uh, I think there is better stuff out there, but at the same time, I appreciate what it has done and what it does, and. Again, not. I, I think I may have would have liked to have seen it in the theater. Yeah, I feel like this is a better theater movie. They just actually showed it last week at the New Beverly at midnight. Yeah, but yeah, I feel like that would have maybe. Oh, I should have dragged you there. I would have. I would have liked to have seen it because I think that may have actually captured me a little bit more. Um, and you know, I understand also that you know this style of anime is is as a high watermark. You know, it's a it's a high watermark, and I think that. You know, I don't want to take anything away from it. I just, I just feel like, hmm. Well, I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah. But like when it came out, it was the violence that really startled people. You know, like the Chicago Tribune is one of the people who gave it a negative review. And their whole review, I think, is slanted against something that you do agree with, which is animation is not just for kids. Animation should be whatever it wants. Animation is not a genre. But I think when it came out people were still learning that lesson. I think we still are learning that lesson. And a lot of the negative reviews came from having that mindset that you're always railing against. They expected to see a cartoon for kids. This is not it. They were angry. Um, So the Chicago Tribune, they actually called their review, Japanese cartoon Akira is not one for the kids. And this is how um, they described it. The film takes a stab at realistic human figures, though they prove, as always, too difficult to animate convincingly. And a hulking stiffness takes over. The violence, too, is realistic, with blood and body parts bursting forth at every opportunity. Though Akira isn't rated, this is one cartoon that is not for the kids. It is pervaded by the sadistic spirit that crops up disturbingly often in Japanese mass entertainment. Still, Akira remains the work of a cartoonist rather than a born animator. Too much of the movie is played out in the static frames of a comic strip, and when movement is used, it isn't to define character, as in Disney, or establish a rhythm, as in the Warner Brothers cartoons, but simply for its physical impact. Pounding away, it becomes monotonous. And I thought Hmm. that review was interesting because it feels like it was impossible for this reviewer to even describe the film without comparing it to the animation that they were familiar with, with with Disney and Warner Brothers cartoons. That it was almost impossible to let this movie be what it is instead of wanting it to be like the animation that this person grew up on. And, and yeah. I, I like no, the stillness. It, I love it, the well, stillness of it. But yeah, no, I think that those are the interesting things going on. What I'm what I'm seeing is wrestling with a lot of ideas, trying to jam it. It's almost like, can you do all of Game of Thrones in you know a two hour movie? I don't know if you could, and if you could, would it be would it feel like this? Or you know, um, but at the same time, I also want to like evaluate that I watched the dub version of the film. Mm. And that 
it may have skewed me in a wrong way too because oh, the voice acting is as we've played in the show is different I, it's not like you know look i i watched uh ponyo and they cast like a lot of great uh american actors to you know and there's a there's a real subtlety to the dub version of it that i think is actually very well directed um and i think that here it reminds me a lot my, of watching pokemon cartoons with my son the the voice acting doesn't seem as uh as artfully directed as i feel like uh i've seen other dub versions that's fair i do wonder if that would make a difference because i'm I'm thinking about it i'm going like why am i having a hard time and i'm like maybe the reason why i didn't connect is because i did i did have a reaction to some of those voices and i'm thinking back like you're saying oh did someone make fun of you for not liking akira like no one talked about akira to me i never i never heard about akira ever i didn't hang out with people who watched akira it wasn't like oh i i saw it when i worked at blockbuster but it wasn't like a thing that i yeah. you know, uh, was trying to get into. Uh, but I, I feel like, um, but it reminded me and it got, brought me back to those kind of Fox, you know, coming home from after school and seeing like that, those kind of dubbed uh, cartoons. And it, like, I think that that, that voice act. I bet that does like subconsciously make it cheaper. Yeah. Right. And it felt cheaper yeah. to me, even though that's with the visuals. And there were like moments just watching the visuals. Now I will say uh, as my final, uh, you know, I'm open to being wrong and I can't wait for people to tell me how wrong I am. But uh, I will say that when I went to sleep, I did those visuals I felt like were in my mind too. So like, you know, there are, you know, I have yeah music, visuals. I like the ending. I know people also hate the ending. I know people think it's overrated. I think people think it's the most seminal work in animation. So, uh, you know, teach their own. I mean, I I'm think, excited yeah. to go on this journey with you. I think if you ever watch it again, subtitled, Maybe it will have more impact when, you know, you have lines like, like the kids saying there ought to be a future we can choose, which is something I think about all the time that like we through the environment, long story, won't get even sucked into it, but like we are leaving kids in a future that they haven't chosen. And I think I care deeply about that feeling of like, what must it be like to be young in a future that like people destroyed before you got there? You know, and and I I don't know. I find that really beautiful. I feel like at the end of the day, it's part of this is movie is a child's revolution. You know that you've grown up in a country that has hidden their own history from you, that has done terrible things that they don't want to talk about, that doesn't allow you a chance to really fix things. It just uses you as carnage to keep going the way that things have been going. And for young people to be the people who survive and figure out how to rebuild. Uh, if they can, I do. F- I find that really beautiful. It's as it's as optimistic as you can get in a grim time. I mean, by the way, as we're talking about all this sort of stuff and thinking about kids and 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 dealing with this, I'm thinking about Stranger Things and how Stranger Things is like almost a direct rip of uh, Kira as well, with Seven having these psychic powers and these kids kind of finding her and what she represents and like you know how she could be dangerous and we need to keep her, you know, and this idea like you know, uh, you it's know, all Kira, yeah. man. It's all Akira, Akira. dude. (laughs) There it is. There it is. Well, but I mean, now, but to say that Akira is the seminal work of Japanese animation, I think would be, you know, maybe doing a disservice to another giant animation uh, legend, which is, of course, Miyazaki. And I feel like, you know, we have been told numerous times we need to do a Miyazaki film, but we, you and I were kind of at at, you know, 
didn't know which one we wanted to do and we were wrestling with it. So we want to leave it up to you. We want you to voice your opinion on social media. You can go to the Discord page at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. You can go to uh, our uh you know, either of our uh, Twitter pages, uh, the unspooled Twitter page, and weigh in on what uh, Miyazaki film you want us to do. And while you do that, I think we will take a break from anime and explore something a little bit different, um, which is claymation, and go Ooh. to the uh, the great people over at Ardman for uh, a film that I think many people consider Maybe the best Ardman film, and there's probably a lot of argument over what is the best, but let's say that this, this was one that is definitely uh, viewed as one of the best, if not the best, and that is Wallace and Gromit and the Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Uh, so I'm very excited to talk about that uh, as well, and as we continue our animation month. Oh, Paul, I love getting animated with you. <laughs> Mesmerized audiences. They've delighted millions. Job well done, lad. <laughs> now, Wallace and Gromit in their first full-length motion picture. Gromit, old pal, I'll need assistance. Gardens of England are in danger. This is a disaster. I have the most terrible rabbit problem. From a terror so fierce. Oh, they must be breeding like, well, rabbits. It will petrify your parsnips. If you ask me, this was arson. Curdle your carrots. Arson? Alright, someone arson around. <laughs> and chill you to the marrow. Mercy! Our only hope is Wallace and Gromit. How on earth would they ever catch such a big rabbit? With a big trap. By Jove, he's... he's got it. Wallace and Gromit, curse of the were-rabbit. Hey, give over. Watch Wallace and Gromit, uh, Curse of Were-Rabbit, wherever uh, you get your things, and, and check out Hoopla, which is a great streaming service from your local public library. All right, we'll see you next week. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. 
Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.